Okay, if you want to find the book of Exodus in your Bible, uh, if you don't know me, I'm Matt, I lead the team here at Liberty Church. It's great to have you with us, uh, particularly if this is your first time here. Um, we know that walking into a place like this can be an overwhelming experience. So you've made it, well done. We hope you really enjoy being with us. Uh, if you have any questions at all, please feel free to ask us. As Joe said, you can ask the people that have got a big badge saying, ask me on. I think it'll be quite fun just to find the most difficult question you can ask them. Just see if you can really stump them. Like 74 times 2002 or something, I don't know. They do answer mass questions, I'm told, so you can, uh, you can put them to test. Okay, let's get straight into this passage. We're in the book of Exodus. Uh, we've been slowly working through chapter 20. Um, very slowly. So this is uh, verses 1 and 2, which we've been looking at each week. It says, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And we're going to jump to verse 15. You shall not steal. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your just, uh, your incredible lavish grace that uh, we get to come and enjoy this morning for those of us who are followers of you, believers in you. We get to feast on this glorious grace, this wonderful feast, this meal you've laid out for us, that all of us can join with those first Egyptians, uh, first Israelites saved out of Egypt and say, I've been rescued, I've been redeemed. I've been brought into your family and your kingdom. And we now want to live out the consequences of that. Um, not because we want to perform to somehow win your favor, but in response to your lavish grace and mercy, we want to follow you because we just know it's the best way to live. So we pray just as we look at these words together that you'd speak to us, God. You come and provoke our hearts, stir us to follow you. Fill us, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. I was brought up in a town in England called Bedford, which if you've not heard of Bedford, don't worry. There's nothing particularly impressive about the place. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, came from Bedford. Uh, he died 500 years ago, and nothing has happened there since. It's that sort of place. Uh, and when I was about 10, 11 years old, I would walk to my school. I'd walk down... Uh, where was it, Tyne Crescent, down Avon Drive, and then you'd walk past this little shop uh, called, I think it was called McCall's, it's now called the One Stop Shop, and uh, you would stop there to, to pick up sweets and chocolate bars and things like that. But the, uh, the McCall's, or now the One Stop Shop, had a, uh, a particular policy that they would put into place, which was the uh, I think for, for children under the age of 16, a one-in, one-out policy. So you could only go in the shop if there were no other children below your age in there. And then you couldn't go in until that person had left. Um, and they did this for a reason, because particularly young boys around my age, I'm just going to put them over there and distance myself from those evil people. But young kids about my age would go in and steal chocolate bars and sweets. I never did that. I never received them from anybody. 
But anyway, that's what would happen. So the particular policy of a kind of one in, one out. Uh, because 10-year-old kids were breaking this commandment that they were stealing. Um, and you might think very simply, well, that's, that's kind of what this commandment, that's what's in the Bible, right? To stop 10-year-olds stealing sweets. Uh, to stop kids doing stupid things. Just, you know, common theft. Or you might think, oh, it's there to stop all those evil corporations Amazon or whoever else who refuse to pay their taxes, you know, raise billions and billions of pounds each year and pay two euros in tax or whatever, they should listen to this commandment. But you might think, well, me in the middle, how does this affect my life? What's this, what's this got to do with me? Um, as we've been looking at a few times when we've been talking about these commandments, or just the Bible in general, it has a very high view of humanity, of, of us as the human race. Um, it holds us with, with a kind of an esteem, holds humanity as almost something that's kind of sacred. It's incredibly important because, as the Bible teaches, we're all made in the image of God. We're all made in his image, in his identity. We carry something of him within us. So therefore, we should treat humanity with tremendous respect and honor and esteem. And that works out in, in, a, in, a, few different, in a few different ways. So it says in Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, which we looked at over the last couple of weeks. You shall not steal, which we're looking at today. And you shall not covet, which we'll come on to in a few weeks' time. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbors as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We should, we should love our neighbors. We should love those around us. That's what it means to follow these commandments. And we love because we love people as though they were, they were God himself, as though Jesus was before us. It's how we should treat other people. Because we're made in his image, in his identity. And that means that as we go through these commandments, which says you shall not murder, the positive side of that is telling us to hold people, individuals, humanity, with an incredibly high sense of esteem. When he talks about uh, adultery, the positive side of that is to say we should hold marriage and relationships as incredibly important. We should seek to see them uh, uh, bettered and grow and flourish. And then when we come to this one, you shall not steal, it's saying that actually personal property, what we own, actually, we should hold as important. As we, should, we should respect it and honor it and protect it, which might sound a bit confusing to you because it doesn't really sound very holy. But I don't know if you've ever felt that kind of that violation of when something has been stolen from you, you know, to like outright taken away from you. You know, we've lived in Amsterdam for coming up to five years and we've had, what, four bikes stolen from us? And every time it leads me to a place of prayer, where my prayers are about thunderbolts and criminals walking past the thunderbolts. Those are the sort of things I pray. Because you feel, you feel the sense of anger. 
You feel violated that somebody could come and take what's, what belongs to me for them to take that. Have you ever felt that kind of sense of violation? When someone's been taken from you? When someone's maybe even broken into your house or your car? Taken something that belongs to you and they've taken it for themselves as their, as their own. That's a disturbing feeling. And part of that's because the Bible understands that um, you know, we're talking about murder and uh, we're talking about honoring our parents and not committing our adultery because these things are important. It's also saying that property is, is important. And let, I'm going to explain why that, why that is. Because you could think, well, surely that's, that's kind of a bad thing. You know, to, to value property sounds a bit like idolatry, right? To say, well, that's so important that I'm going to get really, just to, to get really upset because someone's stolen your bike. On one hand, is a bit silly because it's just a bike and you can just buy a new one. Um, and you have to be careful. Things can become a, an idolatrous thing where something becomes so important to you that when it's stolen, you're heartbroken because actually something's taken away something that's not just important to you, but it's become the main thing in your life. It's become an idol that's been robbed from you. But at the same time, we feel a kind of a righteous frustration because you and I, we, we were made for stewardship. Um, and, and in the world around us, we think in a different way. We, we think that we were made for, for ownership, that we should own things, that we should accumulate more stuff, more property, more goods to kind of keep us happy, more goods to kind of fulfill us. But actually, we were made for stewardship, not ownership. And that goes very, very far, right back to the beginning of the Bible, and we find Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It says the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So just like Adam was called into this, um, in a sense you might think, well, what are you talking about gardening? How does this make any sense? But God, God said to Adam, I want you to steward this world that you've put in. The animals, the landscape, everything, that's yours now. I'm going to give it to you. He says to keep it, as in that, that, that now, in a sense, belongs to you, but at the same time, it belongs to God. He's saying, I want you to work that and keep that on my behalf. You're now a steward of what God has kind of given to you, and that's the same for us. Any resources that we have, any money that comes our way, is, is, is a gift God has given you. It's a gift. And I think you'll find if you begin to see money and property in that respect, because that, that might shock you a little bit. You think, no, no, this is mine. You know, you don't tell me you're, you're kind of cloud god in the sky, this mythical being suddenly owns these things now. But if you do begin to see it that way, say, well, maybe these things aren't mine. Maybe God's given them to me as a gift to steward. That will completely change your perspective on how you deal with those things through your entire life. It will change how you interact with it. It will change where you try and find your joy. And when those things get taken away from us, I think we feel that sense of violation sometimes because there's something in our hearts that echoes back to this very uh, command that God gives to Adam, where he's told to work and keep it. And there's something within us that feels like, oh, God gave this to me, and it's been stolen away. 
We can feel a sense of violation because of that. Now, let's look a little bit about, um, I'm going to give you some tips on, on how to steal, because that's what you came to church for today, how to steal. And the first question is, um, I guess th- there are kind of two ways to describe somebody who steals. There's, uh, there's the robber, you know, uh, who, who, you know, he kind of turns up with his, with his swag bag uh, and he kind of breaks in, he kind of uses obvious threat and violence. You know, he doesn't try and do it undercover. He's just blatant about, you know, if he just walked into the Rice Museum today and, and said, oh, the Night Watch, I like that. You know, I mean, it's quite big, so you'd probably have several of you doing that and walking away. But that would be, you'd be robbing it. It's kind of a very obvious thing. But there's also the thief, who's, that works a bit more kind of like, there's a bit more stealth to that, a bit more cunning, trickery. It's not obvious. There's a kind of a sleight of hand around that. There's the deception. Uh, and most people we could say here, I'm, I'm not a robber. You know, I've never walked into the corner shop and stolen a Mars bar or whatever. You know, that's not, I'm not a robber. Most of us, that's probably true. But I think in many different ways, uh, this idea of being a thief is probably something that we can relate to in lots of different ways. Because there are different ways that you could understand that. One way to steal, to be a thief, is to waste time. Might sound a bit harsh. But if, if you're employed to do a job, and you spend all your time on Facebook or playing, I don't know, whatever game, then you're kind of stealing away from, from your work, from your employer. They've given you a job to do, but you're just wasting your time and their time. In a way, that's, that's a, a kind of a type of theft, a type of stealing, because you're just, you're just ripping them off. It says this in, in Proverbs. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? We don't use that word much. We should, shouldn't we? <laughs> How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And now, it's not, it's not a bad thing to rest. We were talking about that a number of weeks ago when we were talking about, about the idea of Sabbath. Rest in itself is a gift that God's given us. But laziness... Just kind of wasting time at your job. You're just being a sluggard. And the thing is that that will kind of rot you a little bit. You know, that kind of lethargy that you get. I don't know if you've ever ever had that kind of day when you've not done anything at all and you feel tired because you've not done anything at all. And that's a bit of a hint of what happens. If Now, I, I know that many of you have probably had moments, times, bits in your job where you just go in and waste a bit of time here and there. And I'm not trying to nitpick at five minutes here and there. You know, you've spent two minutes too long in the bathroom. I'm not trying to get at that. But we can quite easily adopt a kind of a lifestyle, a way of working, a way of living, which is predominantly driven by trying to find, um, trying to avoid working. And without, without realizing it, you can suddenly find that you've become, you've become a sluggard. You've become this, this guy. You're, the way you approach your job is how can I do the least possible just to get through the day? That's a very easy trap to slip 
to slip into. And in a way, it's a form of theft. It's stealing. The next one is just ripping people off. So just profiteering, taking advantage of other people, you know, taking the, the TV that doesn't work and putting on Mark Platts and trying to sell it for 50 euros or whatever. There's all sorts of different ways that we find things that we know what their true value is, but yet we think, I could get more from this. And we can rip people off, even other brothers or sisters in Christ. We can rip them off because we want to get a good deal out of it. We want to, we want to get some money back. You know, I brought this for 200 euros. How can it only be worth 10 now? And there's something within you that says, no, I want, to, I want to get my money back here. And we can quite easily think very selfishly and just rip people off. The next one, you don't pay your debts. It, uh, there's a verse we read in Romans 13 earlier. It starts, owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, I'm not saying that it's, you could read that verse, owe no one anything, and think, hold on a second, what do I do about my mortgage then, you know? You know, Joe and I have just brought a house, taken on the mortgage. We, we owe more money right now than we ever have done in our life. Which, I've just verbalized that, and it's terrifying. But, you know, we also have, we're paying it back um, little by little, and it's going to take a long time. But there's a principle here. If, if, if you borrow money from somebody, and you just don't pay it back, um, You know, I'm, I'm sure there's probably many ways that we've, we've done that with little or small amounts. But there's a, the, the Bible is giving us a very clear principle here that, that it's saying, look, actually, that was money. I, uh, God's saying that was money I gave to that person. So for you to borrow it and then not give it back, is you're not just stealing from them, but you're stealing from God, from his provision for them. So we should make sure we don't have any unpaid debt. Perhaps the most obvious one will just be greed. That we can steal by just being greedy, which again is a problem that will afflict us all. The uh, uh, John Rockefeller, someone asked him in an interview, how much money is enough? Because he was an incredibly rich man. They said to him, how much money is he enough? And he said, just a little bit more. And that, that's what greed does to you. I don't, I've always thought this. I've, I've, I tend to, the way my brain works, I tend to look into the future quite a lot. And I'll look into the future and think, yeah, if, we could, if I could just earn that amount of money, you know, if we could inherit money from over here, if this could pay off, if that investment could, could work out for us, then we'll be okay. You know, you're, you make a plan for your kind of future self, And then when your normal self catches up with your future self, you think, oh, okay, oh, it's, it's not quite enough after all. So then you make another plan, and you think, oh, in, if this works out, if that happens, then we'll be okay, then that'll be enough. And that's what greed does to you. It kind of takes hold of your heart to a place where the money you have is never enough, and you always want a little bit more. And you could say, well, you don't, you don't understand You, you don't understand, you know, I'm a student, I don't have any money, or I'm in this position, or I've got this debt to pay, I've got this credit card bill to pay off, I've got X, blah, 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 blah. Of course I need more, which might be true. But if, if that's the principle that you kind of give into, where you're always seeking just a little bit more, 
there's something that's taken hold of you. And that greed means that you'll just always be trying to accumulate more and more and more. Where people around you, people in our city, people in this planet, get less and less and less. Because sometimes it's easy to look at those statistics that you see online, you know. You know, 1% of the population of the world owns however many billions, and the next 98% or whatever owns the same amount. Those sort of statistics. It's very easy for us to say, aha, look at those people that are, their greed means we're all poor. We don't often see how the riches that we have and the poverty of our neighbors, and maybe sometimes our greed is the cause of other people's poverty. Another way to steal is to, less associated with money, but to, to squander your, your talent. It says in, in Luke 16, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. There's, we believe very much that the church here is... is as a family, as a community, as the body of Christ. So if there's gifts that God's given you, but you kind of hold them back and you hold on to them, you say, well, this is for me and I'm not prepared to give it to the church, then you're actually robbing away from the community of God something that he's given, to, he's given you to the church to be a blessing. And if you say, well, I'm going to withhold myself from that, I'm not actually going to I'm not actually going to engage in the life of this church. I'm just going, to, just going to come and kind of look in from a distance and then leave, and I'll always stand on the edge. Then you're kind of robbing the church of something that God's given here. And you might, there might be many reasons why you're acting like that. And it might be just, if you're brand new here, then, then you know, I'm not saying that you should suddenly throw yourself all in straight away. You know, feel very free just to come and get to know us and find out more about us. But for many of you, it might be you've not really committed in to the life of the community because you're afraid. Because you just feel like you don't fit. You don't feel what you have to offer is good enough. And actually, God's given you to his body, his bride, his church to be a blessing. And you might, know what, you might not know what that looks like, but I promise you there's, there's so much... Uh, of God's goodness that he's put within you that could serve people around you. So don't, don't squander what God's given you. He's given you to be a blessing amongst us, a joy here. Okay, we talked about, there's lots of other ways that you could steal, but I don't want to get into too many technicalities. But let's look at how not to steal. Um, we're going to use the Heidelberg Catechism to help us the catechisms are just kind of a, a um, basically a, a, a big, um, the best way to describe it, but um, a kind of a bringing together of lots of truths about God, a kind of a bit of a distillation, a pulling together from the Bible into one kind of document. This is who God is. This is what he's like. This is what the Bible says to us. And it says about this commandment, it says, what does God require of you in this commandment? And it, it takes perhaps a different slant than you would imagine, because it doesn't say just don't steal. It says, I must promote my neighbor's good wherever I can and may deal with him as, as I would like others to deal with me and work faithfully 
so that I may be able to give to those in need. So the kind of positive side of this commandment actually takes the idea of loving your neighbor as people made in the image of God and kind of sends us out into the world to love people, to bless people, to seek their good, their well-being. Because really, I guess you could sum up um, all those things that we just talked about, how, how not to how to steal, all those negative angles, have, they're probably summed up in two words. One would be injustice, and the other would be kind of, well, it's, it's three words, because injustice and then kind of poor stewardship or bad stewardship. To, to, to steal, that leads to injustice. If, if we're all the time just accumulating more and more and more, there's other people out there that are getting less and less and less. And the more we do that, the more that just creates bigger gaps of injustice in the world around us. And also, there's just a, a, a bad stewardship of these resources that God has given us. It says here in uh, Psalm 35, my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him? So this psalm takes that very principle and says, look, actually, if we're, if we're becoming strong in the building up of our own personal wealth, our own personal catalog of possessions, actually, we're robbing away from the poor and needy. It's, it's, um, it's just injustice. And then here in, in Ezekiel, it's talking about a righteous man or woman says, they don't oppress anyone, but they restore to the debtor his pledge, they commit no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked with a garment, does not lend interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous, he shall surely live, declares the Lord God. This is a beautiful vision of how we're supposed to treat humanity around us with justice, with fairness, with a sense of honor, with a wise stewardship of what God's given us. To really kind of help to boil this down and distill this, the writer Jerry Bridges, he came up with these kind of three, three statements. Um, you, I guess there's three ways that you can look at your property, your possessions, your money. And you can either say, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. You know, that's an act of stealing, an act of robbery. I want what you have, so I'm going to take it away. Um, and another way is perhaps how most of us would think is, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. I'll keep it. It doesn't necessarily sound such a bad thing until you read a book perhaps like The Lord of the Rings and you meet Gollum, yeah? I don't know, if you don't know the story, he, he takes possession of this, this um, it's good. the thing is whenever you try and explain The Lord of the Rings to anyone who hasn't read it or hasn't seen the movies, it just sounds completely wacky. But anyway, Gollum gets possession of this ring, um, this kind of powerful magical ring and it, it kind of takes possession of him to the point where he, he spends his entire existence either possessing it or when he doesn't have it, chasing after it. 
And what happens is he's living out this, what's mine is mine, I'll, I'll keep it. But what happens is it kind of takes over him and it destroys him and he becomes this wretched, horrible creature. It just robs him of any dignity, it just robs him of who he really is and it destroys him. And it's, it's a metaphor that that book gives us of what can happen to you when you let money, when you let possessions take control, is it, it does horrible things to you. And then the final way to understand it is, what's mine is God's, so I'll share it. That, that's what this principle of stewardship, going right back to Adam in the Garden of Eden, where God sends him into the world and says, work it and keep it. This is mine, but I'm going to give it to you. It's exactly the same with how God treats us. He gives us money and resources to, to steward. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy life and go out for a good meal and have a great time. Of course you can do those things. I'm not saying that God is kind of a frugal, harsh God. He says, buy the worst clothes, never get your hair cut. You know, just every month, every cent has to, to go away. And any, any coin, any bit of money you use for yourself is stealing. It's bad. It's not what God's saying. He's, he's given it to you to bless you and to bless others, to, to share it. And I think if, if you begin to view money and your possessions with that mindset, you'll find it incredibly releasing. And so the, the first way of how not to steal is to be a just steward. The second way is to trust God's provision. Because every fifth, on one hand, is a failure to trust in his provision. Every time you have that temptation in your heart just to, to be a bit greedy and just to cling on to it and not give it away, and just say, no, I, I, just, I need this, I can't, I can't part of this, I need it. That temptation to defraud someone, to try and get some more money, to take something away that doesn't belong to you, it's actually a, a failure to trust God for his provision. <laughs> That's ultimately what's going on in your heart is that you're just not able to trust him for what he's allocated to you. And also, it's, it's an assault on his providence, his provision for other people. Whenever you steal for someone else, on one hand, you're saying, God, you've not given me enough, therefore I need to take it from somewhere else. But you're also, you're also robbing someone else away for the provision that God has for them. And that's how injustice plays out, where we're robbing people away of what's rightfully theirs and taking it for ourselves. Also, we've got to be aware there's a, there's a battle going on that we face an enemy who the Bible describes as a thief. It says this in John chapter 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And we have a... <laughs> you've got to understand this, um, there's a spiritual battle going on. There's an enemy that his purpose is to steal. He's a thief. And he wants to rob you. He wants to rob you of your joy, of your hope, of your strength, of your dignity. And he wants to make you less than human. 
He wants to turn you into just another version of Gollum, essentially. Robbed of any peace in your life, robbed of any happiness. And one of the main ways he does that is by this idol of money, of property, of, the Bible uses this phrase, mammon. Particularly in cities like this, so much of life is dominated by this goal, this prize. And it's an evil idolatry that you must resist and stand firm against. Because if the Bible says you can't love God and money. And um, it's one of the simplest verses. I've read it so many times that I so quickly forget. You can't love God and money. You can't. And if any aspect of your life has given over to a love of money, then you're just, you're falling into, you're just stealing away from the joy that you can have in, in knowing him and following him. You can't love God and money. And some ways to kind of wage this battle for your heart is first of all is to work for the good of others. It says in Ephesians 4, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So it says if, if, if that's you, if you're guilty of stealing, if the love of money has begun to control you, then go and do some work so you've got something to, to share, to give away, work for the good of others. Maybe that might be a helpful way for you to see your career in the future. How can I work for the good of others? I've met people who've, who their goal in life is to make as much money as possible because they want to give as much money as they can away. <laughs> I think, yes, that's wonderful. Whereas the world around us is full of people who've made a similar pledge. I want to make as much money as possible so I can have as much money as I can. And they get stuck in that Rockefeller problem of never having quite enough. But instead, if you say, I'm going to raise as much money as I can so I can give as much money away. If, if, you, if you accept that mission, you'll find yourself on an incredible adventure through your life. You'll find wonderful joy in, in not just in not suddenly finding yourself with a wonderful provision from God, but the much greater blessing of being able to give it away and share some of that happiness with other people, to see other people lifted, sometimes even out of poverty, out of difficulty, by your generosity. It's a wonderful gift to be given that calling. So we can work for the good of others. We can give money away, very simply, um, we find a story um, in Matthew of the rich young ruler. It says that, behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you enter life, keep the commandments. And the young man says, which ones? Jesus says, he, he quotes these passages we've been working through. Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, 
you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, you could read that and think that Jesus is kind of giving us a new commandment. He's saying to all of us, just give away everything. He's not actually saying that. He's talking to one young man, and he knows the idol in his heart. He knows that this young man has lost his life to the love of money. And he knows the only way to uproot that is to do something quite radical and to get right to the the heart of that issue and chop it off. Money is your idol. The only way you're going to defeat that is to give it away. It's to give it away. That's that's a, a mission that Joe and I have spent our married life trying to figure out is... Sometimes when we've not even had that much money, often when we've not had much money, how can we give more money away? Sometimes, to be honest, when it's been, well, this month, if we give that money, that much money away, then we'll be that much in the red at the end of the month. And we said, oh, let's just do it anyway. Maybe we're a bit stupid, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's not very good financial planning, but you know, I just want to invest my treasure in heaven, you know? Much better place to put it. And you might think, oh, I know where this is going. This preacher has been building up to this whole time because he just wants more of our money. The preacher wants a new suit, a nice car, flashy, flashy clothes. That's not what I'm saying. You should, you should give money to the church if you're part of this church family because it's what the Bible tells you to. But the really at the heart of this issue is an issue of your heart. And if there's something within you that says, oh, this preacher's just trying to get after my money, that's probably an indicator that there's a little bit of love of money in your heart that needs to die. So I'd encourage you, just give it away. (laughs) Some of you, it might be that radical that you just need to give it all away. Probably the much more realistic option is just to take a small step of faith and just give even a small amount away and just say, God, I'm just going to trust you with this. This is all I have. Or it might be, I've actually got quite a lot, but this is hard for me. Let me just take a small step of faith. But I guarantee you, it will be hard sometimes because giving is a sacrificial thing. So many times, Joe and I have had to sacrifice things to give money away. But at the same time, we've known just lavish, ridiculous provision from God in ways that you think, I don't know how that happened. God has just generously provided for us. It's just a wonderful adventure to go on. I would encourage you wholeheartedly to set your life to that. And another way, which is really important, not only to give money away, but to give back what you owe. This uh, idea of restitution. Uh, In 1922, I think it was, in Belfast in Northern Ireland, there was a, a, a revival that spread all across the city where many, many people became Christians. Sometimes God works in that way. Not normally how God works, but from time to time, God just sovereignly pours out his blessing and hundreds, thousands of people just come to know him. And it happened in Belfast in 1922. But one of the most remarkable outcomes of this is that lots of ship workers became Christians, because Belfast is famous for building ships. It's where they built the Titanic. Uh, um, Other ships as well, so don't don't judge them all by that. 
because that would be unkind. They built ships that didn't sink as well. But these ship workers, um, after they became Christians, they started to give back the tools they'd stolen. You know, like how you might steal a pen from your office, and they'd stolen, a, I don't know, like a hammer or a wrench or something. And they started to, and no one told them to. It was just a spontaneous thing that they, they became Christians, and they suddenly, I guess, just conviction came, and they thought, oh, flip, I've got this thing, but, I, sorry, that, that probably doesn't translate very well, does it? Flip. It's a very English word. It's, it's so I don't swear, basically. I guess it'd be ruder words like saying, flip. I'm going to give back this hammer. But that's what they did. They just started giving back what they'd stolen. And it happened so much that at the Belfast uh, dockyard, they had to build a new shed, seriously, to, to, to hold all the tools that these men were giving back they'd stolen away. It's because... <laughs> When you follow Jesus, it's not just this kind of mythical, spiritual thing. There's a deep reality to it that affects you and it changes you. And, and a way to kind of fight this battle of I'm not going to love money or possessions, I'm going to love God, is sometimes to give back things that you've taken. And actually, you know that's not yours, not really Maybe just go and give it back. And you'll find in, in doing that, oh, there'll be something incredibly releasing, incredibly freeing in that activity. And I want to finish by coming to a couple of passages. First of all, in Luke 11. It might seem a bit of a weird passage to begin with. It says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than him attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. See, what, what Jesus did is he came and took on this feast. And it actually, the Bible kind of says that in a way, Jesus stole from him. We've been talking about how not to steal, but Jesus kind of stole. He stole us back. He came and took what the enemy was trying to claim for himself and said, you're not having that, that's mine. And he took it back. He stole it back for himself. He plundered the enemy to gain a great prize, his church, his bride. Jesus came to win us back, to rescue us. But amazingly, he... <laughs> Not only did he come and kind of steal away, but then he was condemned to die as a thief. That's how Jesus died. He was crucified on a cross. And that's how in first century Palestine, Israel, whatever you want to call it, that, that's how they would kill a common thief, is that they would crucify them. It was a very undignified way of dying. That the ways you would you would kill someone who had a bit more prestige and a bit more fame, you wouldn't do it this way. This is how they got rid of the real dregs of society. Just the common thieves. That's how they would, they would execute them, by crucifying them. It says in, in Mark, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus was literally crucified next to two robbers, just two common thieves. And he was given the same death. You're just going to die as a common thief. That's how Jesus 
died for us. It says in, here in, uh, in Luke, this is Jesus speaking here. He tells you this, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. He's quoting from Isaiah 53, which says, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus, he, he bore our sin, whereas we should have all died as common thieves. We've just been stealing away what isn't ours in so many different ways. And yet he died as this thief in our place. He, he bore your sin, he took upon himself. So we could have a wonderful freedom in him. And to release you into this brilliant lifestyle of generosity, of faithfulness, of just good, just stewardship. He's released you into that now by his death. This wonderful new life that we can lead. Okay, let me pray and then we'll share communion together. Why don't you just, um, you might just want to bow your heads. You don't have to close your eyes. Um, just as I'm praying, why don't you just ask the Holy Spirit just to come and speak to you. God, we, we thank you that in so many different ways, we, we all know really that there's different ways that we've stolen from people. Whether it's just we've just wasted time or we've not paid back some money that we've owed. We've just squandered the gifts that you've given us. We've been robbing them away. Or whether we've just been, which is probably true for most of us, just hoarding more things, just being greedy, not sharing things, treating things as ours, and no one else can touch them. God, that's not how we want to live. We want to live lives of generosity, of just faithfully giving away what you've given us for your glory because we know it's just the best way to live. That actually, money won't make us happy, that you make us happy. If we, if we spend our life trying to pursue happiness through money and possessions, we'll end up sorrowful like that rich young man. But yet if we embrace the lifestyle of God's given this to me, so I'm gonna give it away, I'm gonna share it, I'm gonna bless other people, We'll end up on this wonderful roller coaster of faithfulness, stewardship, and joy. We know ultimately for all the ways that we've failed, all the ways that we have just stolen away, we know that you died to set us free. That you died the death of a common thief. Just in the same way we've been common thieves. You've died to set us free, to release us, to forgive us. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Amen.